This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Whew. Jeff, I want to go to a beach resort, but like for people who don't like beach resorts. Is oh, that... yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's do that. <laughs> Have you ever heard of The Beach, you guys? We watched the movie The Beach. Oh, my goodness. Directed by Danny Boyle. And let's Starting. just run right into the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about this movie. He was looking for something new, a way to change his life. Hey, you want to go? You need somewhere to stay? No, thanks. You afraid of something new? I guess there's this urban myth going around here at the moment. It's about a beach. A secret beach. On an island that no one can get to. Somewhere, paradise must exist. I just feel like everyone tries to do something different, but you always wind up doing the same damn thing. One kilometer. Two. Richard? I don't know. I'm thinking miles, not kilometers. I'm American. So? So let's go. Temptation. Would you like to come to the beach with me? They had never known. And a secret no one ever escaped. May God take your soul. I will not die today! Wow, that trailer was as off the wall bonkers as the film. Yeah. Oh my God, this movie. <laughs> the Moby. The world. I, I I enjoyed this movie when it first came out, I but know. I don't enjoy it anymore. No, not at all. Like we had remembered it being far more sci-fi than it actually was, right, right. and it's probably because of that scene that's like clearly just a banjo kazooie. Yeah, there's a scene where he's in the jungle and he runs around, and all of a sudden there's like video game elements on screen, yeah. and everything's like pixelated, like it's a video game. Totally. DiCaprio like, was nominated for a Razzie for his performance in this movie. I know. And I think he deserves it. I had this identity crisis there where I was like, dude, we just let Leo get away with so much because that angel face of his. Because he's not good in it. And then someone else was telling me, they're like, rewatch Titanic. Like, he's not good. <laughs> he's not the reason that movie is great. <laughs> right, right. But like, before that, I, I like I haven't seen Gilbert Grape in forever. So but it was like after the beach that he started hanging out with Martin Scorsese right. all the time. And, like, <laughs> That's a good point. Working with, on these like incredible movies and being like, truly one of the greatest actors of our time. Well, and also, yeah, so he's trying his best. The writing in this movie is ridiculous. It's all over the place. We were wondering, we're like, what is that? Like, are they, is it a critique of these fucking Well, that's the yahoos? thing. The, like, everything about the, the the characters in this movie sucks. Like, yeah. they're not genuine. They're the, with the They're the worst kind of people. And I actually read, recently, Danny Boyle, the director, was talking about the movie and said that he realized halfway through filming that he didn't like any of the characters. Yeah. Which I'm like, oh, that comes across in the movie. Totally. That You're he's like, like, because like, the movie's kind of presenting them as like, look at these cool people like, yeah, on man, the commune just appreciating the beach. Right. They don't need like the pressures of society. They're just here. They're, and yet, meanwhile, they're like, when you go to the city, make I sure need to get me this, to batteries. my <laughs> razors, my makeup, you know, so, so weird. They literally ask for makeup remover. Yes. and we, I, but, but that's the part that made me feel like maybe this is on purpose because there's no way that you're supposed to like those people. But if it was on purpose that we aren't supposed to like them, then it would have played totally differently. I just think it was 
I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we need to read the beach in order to know what was happening. Well, that's because the then thing. it was all like sexy singles. Right, and right, <laughs> it was right. So weird. I imagine in the book, each of those characters were better characterized. Right. The book was written by Alex Garland, who oh, yeah. also wrote Twenty Eight Days Later, also directed by Danny Boyle, and wrote and directed Ex Machina. Right. He's so, capable of greatness. Right. So it makes me think that there's probably much more substance to it. But then again, they were just trying to make it that I don't know what. Whatever. The point is, <laughs> I. I also read that Ewan McGregor was Danny Boyle's first choice to play Richard, uh-huh. Leo's character, but the studio wanted Leonardo DiCaprio and cast him before Boyle could intervene. <laughs> and even though McGregor like blamed the studio, he and Danny Boyle had some beef, and like he admitted that he felt betrayed at the time. Mm-hmm. And then what's crazy is, do you remember the beginning guy, the guy that looks like a junkie? That's Robert Carlyle from Trainspotting. Right, right. So he's yeah, because he's in that movie too. And I guess when he was asked on the Graham Norton show in 2007, like, did that affect any of the other Trains? spotting cast like and he's like nah I took the part anyway <laughs> or I, I took the part anyway I don't know yeah, Scottish yeah, I'm sure that's what me- he mega said, Scottish. Like- but don't worry guys because in 2015 McGregor and Boyle made amends so they're fine <laughs> they, did ma- they didn't make a new movie did no, they I don't think they made a new mo- movie no. together but it's instead of just being like dude you didn't cast me in the beach in the beach it's yeah like, <laughs> you but, was probably like yeah, I've dodged a bullet but it makes me wonder because like, when I was watching this I was like this is train spotting at the beach like you haven't seen train spotting have you no I haven't right so I think like once I learned this because I was like oh yeah Danny Boyle did direct the beach right. it's like it could have been something so different but this- I know it's like a like a drug-fueled kind of insane visually. Yeah, but it kind of, right, insane visually in the sense that you're kind of in a fever dream, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. this movie like delves Goes into. in and out of. <laughs> it know. dips into it in some scenes. Other scenes are just totally so this weird. other movie. Yeah, I don't know. And then it's like, I still know what you did last summer, elements of just being like, we're on the <laughs> island. But of course, this was like right, or like a couple of years after Titanic. So Leo... Uh, he was paid $20 million to make this movie. And he was originally supposed to be the lead in American Psycho, but because oh, really? his, his fucking salary demand was so high, they were like, nah, let's get Christian Bale. And then he agreed to make The Beach. And Danny Boyle asked him to lose 20 pounds for the movie, so it was like a million a pound, perhaps. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> One million dollars per pound yeah, lost. Like but nobody he, should have made... have 20 pounds to lose? Right? It's not like he was a fat guy. He was never fat. But remember, he was emaciated as fuck in this movie yeah, the whole time. Is. I was like, what is this? What's this? He's got most his shirt off for most of the movie, too. That's true. That's cr- I think that but was I, uh, you know. a little bit on purpose. Yeah, very much so. We both stumbled upon this crazy drama about the actual filming on the beach, though. Yeah, because what country did they shoot this in? I think it was Thailand? Yeah, Thailand, yeah. Oh, right, that's right. Because there was, like, some area of this pristine beach that they, like, completely changed and fucked up for the shooting of the movie. And exactly. then they just, like, left it there. Yeah, a place called Maya Beach, I guess. Location scouts initially chose it because of its, like, landscaping potential. <laughs> so okay. they, you know, remember that, like, fucking football or volleyball or whatever they're playing. Like, they needed an area big enough for them to... To play football uh-huh. so they bulldozed a bunch of the native trees and vegetation and shit and then they planted a bunch of non-native plants it's like essentially taking over and changing the environment well that's completely. not the theme of the movie at all no it's about like pristine <laughs> untouched by man but then yeah like fucking seasonal storms hit the beach and because they didn't have the natural vegetation all of the fucking sand dunes washed away and like damaged the coral on the way out oh man yeah so environmentalists went bonkers and accused the filmmakers of bribing the Thai government because I guess Fox had donated the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars to the royal forestry development in Thailand when mm. normally the cost of filming is like 
like a fraction of that. So they were basically free to do whatever they wanted to. Yeah, it sounds like there's a couple of cases of this. Like we, we talked about that tech billionaire who had that crazy wedding in the woods and he got a bunch of shit for it. And then like, like because he like destroyed these like pristine woods in order to do it. But right. then he paid like millions of dollars for environmental help to kind of be right. like, I'm sorry. Totally. Well, let I mean, me do whatever I want. If I pay you enough in environmental money I know. to do the, that's you know. that's called a bribe. But then, yeah, like so environmentalists took legal action against Fox Studios and Thai government officials. And I guess seven years later, the court penalized the film company for unnecessary ecological destruction and then ordered them to repair all the environmental damage. And they they were expected to rebuild the marine life population that was wiped out. Wow. I don't know how the fuck they're supposed to do that, but I guess enough money and like if you get the right people who know what yeah. they're doing. Right. Maybe you could pay them to do it. I just like, yeah, man, I think about that because it's like, no, I mean, I don't know. How do you feel about this? It's like there's got to have been a way to have filmed on this beach without being like, well, let's just move in a whole bunch of non-native Well, now plants. you could just CGI the whole beach. Right. I guess they would have done that. <laughs> right. Well, at one point in the beginning of the movie, DiCaprio, he's in like a strange land and he wants to try all of the crazy oh, yeah, things man. and he ends up drinking snake blood oh, and he yeah. acts like it's the craziest thing that anybody could ever do. Mm -hmm. And my brother's actually tried it in mm -hmm. Vietnam. And the video of him drinking it is so funny because he's like pretty nervous leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And then he drinks it and he's just like, eh, not bad. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. People think that snake blood actually has a lot of health benefits, but none of those are like specific. Like I couldn't find websites that I was like, I trust this. Site. Right. Totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of iron. Like, I don't know. Like, what is what is in snake's blood that wouldn't be in any other blood? That's a good question. That wouldn't also be in other blood because yeah. well, they're cold blooded. So maybe right. it's. Does that have something to do with it? Well, well, yeah, so is it just kind of like the novelty of it, or is it that, like, how do they prepare it to make it good? Well, it, that's the, it, they mix it with alcohol. Oh, okay, okay. Rice, wine, and stuff like that. Gotcha. One, one thing that my brother didn't do, which is also a thing, is eating the still-beating heart of a cobra. Oh, okay, God. Because the, the cobra's heart continues to beat for a long time after it's removed, yeah. and it's like, I don't know if delicacy is the right word, mm. but like it's a thing that people eat. Right. I remember seeing on that show Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman. It's just uh -huh. like big, bald, white guy going around eating a bunch of weird shit. And I right. saw that and like, you know, I understand like culturally there's going to be different stuff that people like. Right. It's like that, that's just like an extra level of sadism that I'm well, not sure. Well, this seems to border on a lot of people, you know, cultures have all have their own unique things. Mm. A lot of people look at this and say that's snake torture. Right. Because they're alive. My understanding was that you take the heart out as uh -huh. you kill the snake and then the heart continues to beat and you can eat it. And when you eat it, it still like beats in your own stomach, that's, which is like a yeah. really crazy kind of experience. Now, yeah. Is it like an adrenaline thing that you're seeking? I like think it's what? a yeah, it's it's a like w you know what? I'm gonna try it. Fuck it. Totally. Yeah, it's a thing that people do. Yeah. But I also read a story about like this guy who felt terrible after he did it, but it was that he, he described it as they cut open the snake and then he was to eat it out of the snake's chest. Right. So like the heart is still attached to the snake and the snake is still alive Ugh. and he's supposed to bite into it and rip it out. Yeah, that's some bullshit. That's the kind of thing where I'm like, I don't know why like cutting it out first is like, but even that is all fucked right. up. You know, dude, because I've been watching, I finally finished Planet Earth 2 recently. Mm. And again, it's just like, we're always reminded nature is pretty gross. I yeah. mean, when animals attack other animals, it's not like, let me carefully and, you know, kindly kill you before <laughs> I... Dissect it's like, this. I get it. We're animals. Right. But 
we've evolved to a point where it doesn't seem I just like what is the evolutionary benefit besides just like ego pat to, I think it's be, beating like, your chest kind yeah. of thing like a like you know a, you're a gorilla something primal about it in think, theory do you think it's on par with just like why people hunt or like, it might what be is it? I, like I think it does come from I want to try something I've never tried before. Right. Is that how your brother felt like? That was definitely with the with the snake blood. It was like a thing that they were experiencing. This was actually a part of like a musical cultural documentary that he was doing. Oh, cool. So it was like experiencing the local culture and the local things is Mm -hmm. like when in Rome, do as the Romans do kind of concept. Right. But eating it out of the snake's chest seems I'm I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah. The beating heart thing. We can uh, we can wait for that that heart to stop. Yeah. Science. All right, there's a lot of talk of secret societies in this movie. There is. The the beach society is supposed to, like the whole thing is just like, oh, it's hippie commune. That's yeah. just like living a blah, blah, blah. And don't tell anybody where the map is because well, don't, you know. Exactly. Only and, for us. Well, yeah, and the whole thing is like, you know, if you have a real great secret, sometimes pain is involved and blah, blah, blah. Right, as, yeah, as, yeah, I'll yeah. get to my favorite line la- later, but... <laughs> Anyway, so I wanted to learn about some of the secret societies, or if they're real, what that is, whatever. But when I first typed secret societies, I was greeted with a barrage of like Trump, FBI, oh my deep God. state stuff. And so I had to like <laughs> sift through. I was like, no. I... Anyway, I was able to find this Washington Post story from 2016 that was talking about how Justice Antonin Scalia, who recently died, he spent his final hours in the company of members of a secret society for elite hunters. Did you hear about this at all? No. It's called the International Order of St. Hubertus. Sounds like something Teddy Roosevelt would have started. Totally. Oh, absolutely. So according to its website, it is a, quote, true knightly order in the historical tradition. So apparently in 1695, Count Franz Anton von Spork... Spork? S-P-O-R-C-K. Spork. Oh my God. I'm like, oh, it's, it's great. He founded this society in Bohemia, which is in modern day Czech Republic. And so the order's name is in honor of Hubert, who's the patron saint of hunters and fishermen. And it was originally intended to gather, quote, the greatest noble hunters of the 17th century, particularly in Bohemia, Austria, and countries of the Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled by the Habsburgs. So okay. we're going back pretty far. Now, the organization denied membership to Nazis, so Hitler dissolved it, but then the order reemerged after World War II, and then an American chapter was founded in the late 60s. Wow, so, I want to know more about that scenario where they said yeah. no to the Nazis, and then the Hitler, Nazis were like, no to you. No to you, buddy, I know. But also, like, you said no to the Nazis? Like, part of me is a little bit like, Good oh, for you right. guys, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah so, what are your internal values? Yeah. They seem to be not terrible. Not sure because it's a little bit counterintuitive that it's it's worldwide but it's a male only society of course uh-huh. let's be most of these that I'm talking about are male only so there's some weird <laughs> shit happening there no girls allowed totally I mean that's what I'm getting at with these societies and fraternal orders and Is shit that it's like literally... y'all that girl issues boy well it seems like the adult version of a treehouse. Like, exactly you're literally little boys yeah exactly well cause like yeah these guys wear dark green robes emblazoned with a large cross and the motto Deum Diligite Animale Diligentes, which means honoring God by honoring his creatures, according to the website. And mm. like some hold titles like Grand Master, Prior, and Knight Grand Officer. But when I was reading about it, I was like, is this just like a hunting club? Well, is that's this the a thing. sports club? It's like, club? what do they a, do? What are we doing? Yeah. So <laughs> It sounds like they just get together and hunt and talk about like 
lions. Right, totally. I mean, and that's what's kind of crazy because it's like with books like The Da Vinci Code and shit, they're shining right. light on like the Freemasons and the Illuminati that seems so crazy. But then I'm like, what? Like, what is this, though? This just seems like a crew. Well, even with the Masons, it's like there's a Masonic temple, like, down the street from here. It's like they have a sign on the door. Right. Like, how secret is it? Is it? Exactly. (laughs) Well, so I found this article in Smithsonian Magazine, and it was telling me that popularity of secret clubs peaked in the 18th and 19th centuries, and a lot of them served as safe spaces for open dialogue about academia, religion, and shit Mm -hmm. without the watchful eye of church and state. So that kind of makes sense if you're in this hyper-repressed society where it's like, it's God's way or the highway, and you know, Here's a place where you can just speak your mind and talk freely. just wax philosophical. Like, Voltaire, George Washington, Ben Franklin, they were all active members of secret societies. Now, in the United States, in the late 19th century, there was enough of a national uproar against secret societies that one group created an annual anti-secret society convention. Whoa. <laughs> now, in 1869, at the National Convention in Chicago, the attendees went after the secular press, basically saying that the press either approved or ignored secret societies, which I just find curious because it's like there, as as much as maybe secret societies have existed in history, there's also like you know, there's like the FOMO of just being like, I don't want no secret society. Like, what are you guys doing in there? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what is the outrage or the uproar against secret societies? Unless there's like some weird shit happening well, over there. That's the thing is like inherent in the secret is what are you trying to keep secret? Yeah. Why can't I know? Exactly. Like, what is, what's going on in there that's so nefarious? Right. Well, so let's go through just a handful of, you know, some of the lesser known secret societies. If they're secret, I guess they're not secret. So there's the... <laughs> yeah, let's openly discuss. <laughs> the secret society is that you can just be a part of it if you're a let's part Google of Let's Google some secrets. <laughs> now, there's the Order of Elks, which was founded in Cincinnati in 1899. And this was after two black men were denied admission to the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks of the World, or like the Elks Club. My dad was part of the fucking Elks Club. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's an old man, but whatever. Elks, like E-L-K, the, the deer-like yeah, animal? Yeah, totally. Okay. The Elks Club. The Elks, like, like it sounds kind of similar. It's just like where boys go and like, ah, yeah. man, I'm gonna smoke my cigar and blah, blah, sure. blah, blah, yeah. blah. So the original Elks Club is still actually quite popular today, and it allows any American citizen 21 years or older who believes in God to be able to join. But so what I so like... we're fucked. Yeah, we're <laughs> fucked. But I did like that at least... You know, it makes sense that at the time of segregation and whatnot, the new that, you know, the new and improved order of Elks founded by the two black gentlemen is like that was one of the only areas where black men and women could socialize. So I like I see the appeal of something like that. But this was like an antithesis to the main one. This yeah. is, or like not antithesis, but like an offshoot. Yeah, it's a it's a like rival we wanna, club. We want to take what we like about that, right? Well, or the existence of it without the racism, I guess. Right. Okay. <laughs> without yeah, that, you're black, yeah. so you can't be a part of our, yeah. our group. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so moving on, then there's the Grand Orange Lodge, more commonly known as the Orange Order, which got its name from Prince William III, and he was the Prince of Orange. And it was founded after the Battle of the Diamond in 1795, which was between Protestants and Catholics. So Mm. similarly, it was a place to protect Protestants. And I guess it still has clubs in Ireland as well as all places around the world. I guess the official website states... Quote, Orangism is a positive rather than a negative force. It wishes to promote the reformed faith based on the infallible word of God, the Bible. Orangism does not foster resentment or intolerance, blah, 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 blah. So what I'm curious about is like, what's the difference, again, between a secret society and like a church or any kind of order? I'm even thinking about like, what's the difference between those things in a country club? Right. They're allowed to have their own private experiences within their club. And so like, yeah, what's... 
the difference between a secret society and a club. Right. Totally. A well, club that you're not telling a lot of people about or that you don't allow everybody into. Or like a, a union, because here's an example, too, because there's a mm. group known today as Foresters Friendly Society, but it was originally called the Ancient Order of the Foresters, and it was initially established in 1834, and it was created before state health insurance began in England, so the club offered sick benefits to its working class members. So there was that kind of thing. Then there was something similar called the Ancient Order of United Workmen, that was created in 1868 and initially if a member died all brothers of the order contributed a dollar to the member's family. So like the ancient order of United Workmen is not a thing today but it sort of unintentionally created a new kind of health insurance that would influence other fraternal groups to include health insurance as part of their constitution. Well it seems like little communities or anything like like not exactly a charitable organization, but right. like something that kind of works that way. And I think that like the church comparison makes a lot of sense because they take donations in order to yeah. hopefully serve the community. When I think of a secret society, I think of it being a fucking secret society, right. like the Illuminati, but also like, you know, people kind of project their own weird ideas of what happens in something like the Illuminati. Like, well, that's another thing. With, rituals when it comes to something like the Illuminati, which is like a, layers further into secret society conceptually mm-hmm. than like normal secret societies. Yeah. It's like the existence of any secret society indicates the idea that there's probably a truly super secret society that right. does it on another level totally. than any of those ones that you maybe could Google. And that's where this concept of the Illuminati comes from, of like whether or not it's based in any truth or reality. Totally. I think it's also this this backlash against this elitism or something like that, you know, because right. the people part of the Illuminati are allegedly like Beyonce and the, you know, like big powerful <laughs> people in the world. So I, it makes me wonder if that kind of backlash or that anti-secret society thing has has to do with that too, of just like anti-elitism. Right. Yeah. Now, okay, so let's round this out. In the 1870s, 24 foremen and supervisors in the coal mines of Pennsylvania were assassinated, and suspects were members of the secret society, the Molly Maguires. This was an organization brought to the U.S. by Irish immigrants. The Maguires likely got its name because members used women's clothing as a disguise while allegedly carrying out acts like arson, death threats, and that kind of thing. So they were like a terrorist group? It sounds like that. Like, not so much a secret society, just like a gang of people that dress like women. you know who's the real secret society? Terrorists. (laughs) Right, exactly. Sleeper cells. <laughs> right. So this group, the Maguires, they were finally undone by a mole planted by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. It was like a famous. I've heard detect- of the Pinkertons. Yeah, totally. Oh so God. they were hired by mining companies to investigate the group. And then in a series of trials, 20 Maguires were sentenced to death by hanging. So it's like on one hand, you're kind of like, yeah, man, take that gang away. But then I also feel like weren't the Pinkertons like union busters and shit? I think like- so. I want to look into them in the future for a future episode because I know very little except that that they existed. Right. I think they were union busters. That's that's how I've heard yeah, about them. It's yeah. like the people that came in. And so it makes me wonder. I'm like, well, the Irish immigrants, they probably weren't doing too hot. Maybe they felt like there was like vigilante justice. Like maybe there was more to it than just like, let's assassinate people. Yeah. But then they were destroyed by the man and blah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's just a few of them. But I think, yeah, it's, I don't know. Like I'm I'm down with a hippie commune. I'm, I'm down with people like working for the the communal good and stuff. Well, when it comes to the hippie communes, I did a bit of research on that. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, I specifically this one called the All One Farm. Okay. Which was a hippie commune in the 70s that 
a lot of people who became like tech billionaires later on oh, okay. got their start at. Or I don't know if it's got their start, right. but influenced them heavily. Mm-hmm. People like Steve Jobs lived and worked on the farm, learning about Ram Dass and other spiritual practices. The place had an orchard, by the way, which is where a lot of people speculate that Jobs got the name for Apple. Oh, okay. All right. But it was mainly a place for people in California to go and live a life with no rules. The idea was to create a spiritual utopian community for countercultural post-hippies, mm. basically to drop acid and think about life, or as I saw it put, push the limits of consciousness. Totally, man. So the All One Farm became like a magnet for psychedelic pilgrims, as they're called. <laughs> I like it. And when people showed up on the farm, they would take Hindu names and sleep in crude flop houses. There were a lot of Hare Krishna monks. Vegetarian meals were served. A lot of meditation and talk of like the best practices for a pure transcendent living. Right. But before too long, people like Steve Jobs were frustrated that it wasn't really being run like a true commune and was being run for the benefit of the guy who was actually running it, this guy Robert Friedland. Okay. It's sometimes really hard to reconcile like the whole free love and free everything attitude that oh, these yeah. people had, which contrasts so much with their business choices later in life. Steve Jobs being a great example where he said that LSD expanded his mind to understand that like you should make things to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. not to make money. You could make the argument that that is what drove him and all of his choices through his career. Mm-hmm. He definitely made business choices that were not in the best interest of serving people and were totally. in the best interest of making money for himself. Right. But beyond that, the guy who ran this commune, Robert Friedland, he later started a thing called Ivanhoe Mines, and he made billions in the mining industry. Oh, wow. His company was known for poisonous dumps and spills, and he got the nickname Toxic Bob. Oh, bummer. Steve Jobs once said about it that it's a strange thing to have one of the spiritual people in your young life turn out to be symbolically and in reality a gold miner. Well, I mean, I I find that so fascinating because it's about like, you know, any of these ideologies of free love, free spiritedness or whatever, like I could appreciate the concept. Right. But when you look at the players involved, then you realize like, but human frailty, human error, whatever you want to call it, because like, when I was doing my research, I also stumbled upon this fucking, God, this New York Times article that was written in October of 2017 that was talking about this self-help group called Nexium, and it's based in Albany, but has chapters across the country, Canada, and Mexico. Isn't that a pharmaceutical drug, Nexium? I, uh, I don't know. It sure, sure sounds like, right? I think it is. But apparently since the late 90s, an estimated 16,000 people have enrolled in courses, which it says are designed to bring about greater self-fulfillment by eliminating psychological and emotional barriers. So the leader, this guy, Keith Ranier, not sure if that's how you say his name, he's known as Vanguard. And on his website, he says that he spoke in full sentences by age one. Mastered okay. high school mathematics by 12 and glorious taught himself, leader. Yeah, exactly. And taught himself to play concert level piano at an early age or whatever. And before Nexium, this self this self-help group, he helped run a company which was later investigated as a suspected pyramid scheme and then had to shut down. But then through Nexium, he was able to kind of transform himself into this long hair guru guy, uh-huh. right? And so, of course, former members have depicted him as a man who manipulated his adherents, had sex with them, urged women to follow near starvation diets to achieve the type of physique he found appealing. And then this was the craziest shit. And this is where I'm like, I have an issue with secret societies in the sense that it's like, you know, where coercion and like true consent where that actually lies. Openness can lead to like an understanding of when things are going wrong. Exactly. Without, you know, like Scientology, like we're going to destroy your life if you try to leave sort of things, you know. 
So to gain admission, the women were required to give their recruiter or master, as she was called, naked photographs or other compromising material and were warned that they might be publicly released if the group's existence were disclosed. Uh Right? So then each woman was told to undress and lie on a massage table while three others restrained her legs and shoulders. And according to one of them, their master instructed them to say, master, please brand me. It would be an honor. So then a female doctor came in and proceeded to use a a cauterizing device to to sear a two-inch square symbol below each woman's hip, which took about 20 to 30 minutes. So it's not clear, like, within Nexium how many people were branded, but it just tells you, like, even within these groups, there's, like, secret shit within a not-secret group. You know what I mean? Like, and it makes me wonder psychologically what happens. Like, maybe you feel like... I mean, even how Tilda Swinton says in the beach, it's like there's a little pain is necessary in order to keep your secret secret. So it makes me wonder, like with the fear and the threats and the whatnot, you're sort of like until you're branded, you're thinking this is normal, I guess. Well, that's the thing. If you're living in this environment where everybody believes the thing that they're believing and you're fully in that bubble, then it's easy to believe what's normal is what's happening. Right. And like as you take these steps, it's like each step seems logical but then you it takes a while to then step back and realize how far down the road you've gone absolutely well I mean it makes me want to for future episodes look more into the the concept of brainwashing so later I'm going to talk about a bunch of urban myths and like why we pass down myths why mm. they keep getting retold and I think there's there's a lot of overlap in terms of what we deem true after hearing a certain thing often enough you know right like yeah you start to believe if you tell yourself something enough times you can start to actually believe it exactly and then the final point in terms of why i think secret societies could be bad is it's like when you're in it but then want to get out Mm. it becomes problematic because even like there have been complaints made with law enforcement people and like because one of the complaints for example that was filed against a nexium physician (sighs) apparently as part of an experiment The physician showed women graphically violent film clips while a brainwave machine and video camera recorded their reactions. And the women said they weren't warned that some of the clips were violent, including footage of four women being murdered and dismembered. Jesus. For a self-help group. And then according to Vanguard, the lead guy, members had to overcome weaknesses that were common to women, an over-emotional nature, a failure to keep promises, and an embrace of the role of victim. So he's showing them these fucking snuff films, basically, in order to like get over, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and that's what bothers me the most is like if people are really looking for self-help or they're looking for a guru, like fucking Tony Robbins or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like how do you toe that line between then what is complete manipulation and exploitation of someone's? Well, that's the thing. I think a lot of the times somebody who's incredibly charismatic and good at convincing somebody of something also mm-hmm. has other bad ideas in their head. right? And like that ability doesn't always go hand in hand with a Jesus Christ like understanding of right. what life is. Right. And and it also makes me wonder like how aware they are. I'm like this guy had to shut down his pyramid scheme and then he did this. You know, right. maybe there's some people like I don't know enough about Jonestown or Waco or whatever mm. to understand this idea of like the charismatic guru leader. Right, but, right. Like what's the difference between a guru and a fucking charlatan a lot of the time? Like Well, that's the thing is like is like or a politician. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to Obama speak and you're get spine tinglies because you agree with what he's saying, it's the same kind of thing, but applied to a different philosophy. Right. And the question is, do, does it line up with the philosophy that you really believe? Right. Or, you know, you can get lost in the process. Totally. Especially, like, everybody has their own emotional or 
psychological baggage, right? Like if somebody yeah. who comes from a broken home and they're not, I mean, look at all the women that followed Charles Manson. It's like they all came from broken homes or what like. What you need to believe in yeah. the, the hole that's in your life and the way that people can fill it totally. and then exploit you by filling it. Right. You know, it, not everybody who's charismatic is a good person. Right. Sad. Sad. Science. So at one point in the movie, they're like, can we swim there? And then they swim there. <laughs> yeah, that's There's right. not much to it. <laughs> we will swim. Because <laughs> it's another one of those cases in this movie where they like bring up tension and conflict and then just disappears the conflict. Oh, that's right. Did and we... it's just like, because at one point, even halfway through, they're like, a shark is attacking us. But then they're just playing around. They just immediately cut to when it's like, and he triumphed over the shark. They're yeah, celebrating it's... after. There was no... There was no stakes. In this it's movie. ridiculous. But I read about this thing that happened in 2012, just talking about long swims, mm-hmm. where a 34-year-old man in London was so excited by Olympic fever. The games were held that year in, uh, okay. in London. He, Olympic fever. Yeah, I know. He decided to swim from France to New York. Yike arounds. Which is 30,594 miles. Not possible, is it? No. Okay. I was like, yow. Even if you just like float on your back, I don't know. Well, actually, I'll get to a guy who actually kind of did it, but let me, yeah. So apparently he told his friends that he was going to deliver some Olympic spirit across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. He jumped in the water and started swimming. He hadn't trained and he set out with no equipment. (sighs) He swam out past the buoys, which marked like the end of the legal swimming area. Mm -hmm. And he kept going. Lifeguards realized that he was out of sight, so they sent a helicopter to go find him. They drop a diver into the water, and the diver tells him, this is a bad idea. You can't just swim to America. Mm. And he said that he was a strong swimmer, and he felt up to it. (laughs) Confidence. Eventually, they made him get on a boat and go back to shore. Had he swum in a direct line, it would have been more than 25 times the longest distance ever swum unassisted in open water by a human being. It's 580 times longer than the longest Olympic swimming event. (sighs) The actual longest open water swim was set by a guy named Velchko Grogusek when he swam across the Adriatic Sea, which was 140 miles. And that took him 50 hours and 10 minutes. I mean, but also it's like... We all saw Titanic too. That water's cold. <laughs> I know. Between what, France well, and New York, it's like coldness. Shark, sharkos. Maybe he did <laughs> it in like, the summer. I don't, <laughs> I don't but know. But isn't it always cold? The North Atlantic? I think so. Okay. But here's the story of somebody who actually did swim across the Atlantic oh, Ocean. But it was assisted. Okay, okay. <laughs> a dude did it in 1998 to raise money for cancer research. He did it with wetsuits, an electromagnetic field to ward off sharks. Oh, perfect. Which was good because a great white was apparently following him for five days say, of like, the journey. You're going to get eaten, man. And a 13-meter support boat. He swam eight hours a day and would rest and eat on the boat in between swims. And eventually he made it across. Cool. But it's like, yeah, you think about it. And if a boat takes a week... To get from one to the other, what is your legs going to take? Right. I mean, and it's not just water. It's like you're fighting currents. You're fighting, I mean, it's the direction aspect of it. Like, where are you just going to fight? The idea that this guy just was like, you know, I'm just going to go. Just go, man. And just swam out there and had to be rescued by a helicopter. (laughs) Finally, they're just like, man, you don't, this is not a question. Like, you will be taken You're coming with us. Wow. Science. So as we heard in the trailer, the urban myth of the beach is what propels this whole narrative. (laughs) It's an urban myth. And I wanted to look into urban myths. You know, there's some off the top of my head. We've all seen the movie Urban Urban Legend. Legend. 
I know what you did last summer, the hook for the hand, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, let me just clarify. When I first Googled urban myths, I kept finding stuff about the comedy show Urban Myths. Have you heard of it? There was like that controversial episode with Joseph Fine who was playing Michael Jackson, but he was like in Michael Jackson face. You don't remember this? No, oh I don't my know God. About this. I remember them being like, huge uproar for like one of these, because the, the episode was supposed to talk about how Michael Jackson took a road trip with Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando, but they had Joseph Fine like looking like Michael Jackson with like white face. What it was, was it so for, weird. Like, Oh, it was Ur- urban a, myth. Is it's about like oh, apparently, it was like a recreation of an urban myth that exactly. happened. I see. I and see. so, but people Boy, like saw, no, they were just like there was like a freeze frame of Joseph Fine, and I remember it blew up on the uh-huh. internet a couple of years ago. It was fucking crazy. <laughs> anyway, so when I sifted through all of that, I was able to find this great mental floss article. It opens with this quote: "Before creepy pasta." Mysterious audio recordings on YouTube and disconcerting clown sightings. The best way to terrorize your friends was by repeating a popular urban legend. And right off the bat, I had to. So I was like, "What the fuck is creepypasta?" It's I didn't some know. Website. Right. So I, I just looked, and it's just a website that has a bunch of these like short paranormal creepy stories. I skimmed cool. through one, and it looked very like a la Bloody Mary. You know, it's like uh-huh. you go in the mirror and you do you say the thing and the scusits, whatever. And then Beetlejuice shows up. Right, totally. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Now, here are some examples of modern folklore and urban legends, and perhaps where the truth may lie behind the fiction. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the killer in the back seat. So, the story is a woman's oh, driving yeah. alone at night when she glances in a rearview mirror and sees a vehicle bearing down on her on a winding road, and the guy even flashes his brights every now and then. So she ends up pulling into a gas station for help, and then the driver reveals that he had noticed a man lurking in the woman's back seat, and then he kept flashing his lights every time he lurched forward to try to strangle her or stab her or whatever. Right, right, right. So versions of this story began appearing as early as the 1960s. The victim was alternately a teenager driving home from a school play or a woman coming back from it. It's always a chick. It's always a woman. But now, at least half of the tale is grounded in reality because over the years, there have been several instances of lurkers who have stowed away in the rear seat of vehicles either to attack the drivers or to just, like, evade police. Hmm. And in 1964, there was one guy who made the mistake of hiding in a car owned by a police officer because the cop just fired on him. So Oh, man. He's <laughs> just like, oh, you're in my car. Wow. Right? Now, the addition of a good Samaritan who's like, hey, lady, I'm just trying to warn you, that seems completely bogus. Well, right? that's the part of the story that that's like the twist the, because the you thought that part, it was yeah. somebody dangerous in the other car, but mm. they were really trying to be a good Samaritan. Right. I love the idea that someone that's going to kill you in your backseat is like, Whoa, can't oh, be seen. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is embarrassing. Let me get Well, back. also, are you going to kill the driver of a car when you're going 30, 40 miles an hour down the <laughs> right. street? Like she's going to be like, yeah. And then crash. you're not, you're not wearing a seatbelt in not the backseat like yeah, that. You're you know, you're murdering somebody. Straight through the fucking windshield, man. <laughs> All right, let's move on. The vanishing hitchhiker. Mm. The story, a couple young guys are driving along and they spot a pretty woman or whatever walking on the side of the road and they pick her up and she tells them to take her home and by the time they get there, she's asleep in the back seat so they go to the front door and her mom answers and he's like, hey, just, you know, like... Your daughter's in my back seat, just fast asleep. But then the woman's like, what? My daughter's been gone for ages. She's dead and right. all this stuff. So then they're supposed to- There hasn't to... been a daughter around here for 40 years. Yeah, exactly. So then they're supposed to go back to the car and then like nothing remains but her clothes. So she's just a vanishing naked ghost. Okay. Now, this story has been traced back as far as the 19th century where a horse and wagon takes the place of a car. Mm-hmm. In Hawaiian versions, the ghost has been picked up in a rickshaw. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> just like, yeah, I'm a, I'm going to bike guide you around the but city. But it's just a hitchhiker who turns out to not be a person. Yeah. And so this is less of like, there's truth to the story. And just, I'm more fascinated by like how long these tales have gone because mm. it's like, you know, she, cause also the, the ghost might be warning people of something of like, or, you know, like she's maybe had died of a violent death or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a Swedish tale that, that was first mentioned in 1602 of a ghostly woman walking along a road who like warned passersby about plagues and wars and shit. Mm. So there's always a warning. Like this is kind of a through line I found, whether it's a moral or a warning. Did you ever hear of the licked hand? The licked hand? Yeah. So like, I had like com- somebody with their tongue licks a hand. I had completely forgotten about this. But like as a kid, they used to tell this story. It's like in the dead of night, either a kid or an old woman or a young woman, whatever. They hear some strange noises. And then for comfort, they let their hand dangle off the side of the bed and let their dog lick their hand to comfort them. Then when they wake up, they go see the dogs either hanging by a noose or their parents have been killed. There's no dog. And then the bloody note reads, humans can lick too. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, so the the These are just ghost stories around the campfire. (laughs) Exactly. So this one was first created in the 60s to scare campers, but also there was like a tale from 1871 that someone heard of like a jewel thief that would lick a guy's hand to make sure like, oh, my dog makes me feel comfortable or whatever. So just licking hands. And then he came in and licked the hand? To be like, I'm your dog. Go back to sleep. And then... And then what? Did he kill him? Did he leave? Did he go, I I comforted him and the dog had a night off. Well, I think what's interesting about myths is there's little truth to them, which is (laughs) what I'm saying. Like someone heard of a jewel thief who licked people's hands to get through. And then a story was born. We got the hook for a hand. You know, two two lovers are parked in lover's lane. There's like an announcement made that there's some guy that escaped from an asylum and, you know, Mm -hmm, he's mm -hmm. he's got a hook for a hand. And then the girl gets all freaked out and is like, take me home. And then she goes home and she leaves the car and notices there's a hook hanging from the door handle. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's like not that outrageous to think that people parked in lovers lanes had something to be scared about because Uh there was a former military man named Clarence Hill that was convicted in 1942 of several murders in Pennsylvania, which was that he'd like creep up on people in their car and shoot them and stuff. So then finally, of course we have the, the babysitter who isn't alone. Wait, can I just, I I assume with the hook on the hand and the door handle that it was just like the guy heard the thing on the radio and then was like, I got a hook. Here's a prank. The well, the hook was clearly just like added for effect. Okay, but like people being stalked. I mean, this was clearly also in the '60s, like a warning to people, like, "Hey, hormonal teens, don't do this because right. there's a there's a guy that's gonna hook you." You know, I yeah, feel like yeah, yeah. so many of these urban myths have don't play hooky, right? Or you'll be hooked. <laughs> that's right, Jeff. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So last but not least, of course, is the babysitter who isn't alone. This is a teenage girl who's babysitting and, you know, the phone begins to ring, stranger calls, blah, 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 blah. She calls the police and then they tell her. What is your favorite horror movie? Right, right. (laughs) Then she calls the police and then they call back saying, the calls are coming from within the house. Mm. Thanks to the film When a Stranger Calls, we saw this all played out. We saw it in Scream, too. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, like, that's happened a lot. Michael Myers stalks the babysitter. Like, yep. But Did again, he pick up the phone? Did Michael Myers call her? <laughs> no. But he stalked those girl He's, babysitters. Yes, he did. That was a thing with the knife. I mm-hmm. feel like that whole thing of like, oh, you see the kitchen knife. It's like using things from the house yeah. to fucking freak you out and yeah. whatnot. But again, like these stories seem to coincide with a bunch of reports about babysitters who were assaulted or murdered in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. But it most likely came out of a fear of leaving a vulnerable young woman alone in a strange house. Right. You know, it's sort of this whole idea of like she wasn't able to protect the babies if you don't have 
have the oversight of a man left to your own devices, right, you're right. not going to blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, what I think is cool about like the kitchen knife and stuff like mm-hmm. that and, and using stuff from like your everyday life is it infects your head in a way where it's perfectly normal for a kitchen knife to not necessarily be in its block. It right. might be in the dishwasher. It might have been left in the dining room or something. Yeah. But when you walk in and you see in the kitchen, you look and the knife is missing, your head goes to the urban legend totally. and not to the... Well, just just being alone, I feel like there's so much yeah. that happens to your imagination. Yeah, just yeah. like, did I see something? Not sure. It's a little too quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> right. Now... Why do we remember tall tales? Why do we tell them? Like, why do these keep getting perpetuated since 1602? So I found a couple of awesome articles that that sort of delve into it. Now, a number of studies have shown that humans tend to remember certain kinds of information, especially knowledge that might keep us alive. So in one mm-hmm. study, subjects were asked to read an urban legend, rewrite it from memory, and then pass their version to the next person like a giant game of telephone. Okay. At the end of the chain, the legends whose themes could have social or survival-related use were recalled most accurately. Mm. Many carry warnings, right? So when research analyzed 220 urban legends, they found that the stories were much more likely to mention hazards than benefits. Because believing in a fake hazard is less harmful than failing to believe in a real one, Mm. evolutionarily speaking, we should err on the side of being overcredulous about threats. So This makes so much sense right? to me. Now, one theory argues that stories, myths, and religious concepts are most likely to endure when they have enough familiar elements to feel plausible, mm. but also have two to three counterintuitive elements that make them memorable. This is a phenomenon known as minimally counterintuitive bias. Mm. It's an actual fucking thing. Yeah, so That's a re- great. <laughs> I know. So a recent study found that reading a false statement made people more likely to rate the statement as true when they encountered it a second time. Mm. even if they were told on both readings that it might be false and even if they later demonstrated that they knew the right answer. So it's like this idea that exposure breeds familiarity, which fosters credulity, even when you know better. Like, if somebody tells you something over and over again, like CNN is fake news, you're going to start to believe it. Exactly. I mean, that's what kind of freaked me out the most is not just in the sense of telling urban legends over and over again, but repeating any falsifiable well, facts. Well, whether it's like a gerbil with Richard Gere to- or I was something. Just say it's, that. Like, it's like, I, I don't know. think that, it, but these things get repeated and then repeated and then you remember them. That's so funny that you said that because Rose McGowan says that in Scream. She's like, you can only hear that Richard Gere gerbil story so many times before it has to be true, oh, right? Oh, I forgot that I know. line. I've seen that movie so many times. <laughs> so they're also very good indicators of what's going on in current society. So if you look at what's implied in a story, we get an insight into the fears of a group in society. Mm-hmm. This, I think, ties into the idea of conspiracy theories that we were talking about before like the abundance of these conspiracy theories and legends around Mm 9-11 the war in Iraq Hurricane Katrina it's all like points to this idea of a distrust in government yeah and so essentially legends should be around as long as there are inexplicable curiosities in life (laughs) that's a great 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 way to end for that thanks article Did you have any favorite lines? Dude, I had so many lines. Yeah. I had favorites. Blah. I loved how the, like, the excitement with which they said, enough dope to smoke every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was the great. whole reason they wanted to go <laughs> Their whole pee. thing is there's like a weed field there. And they <laughs> oh. show up and there's a lot of weed. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, they re- reference humans as being parasites eating the world. On the beach, it's easy to turn your back, but not always easy to forget. Fuck you. Fuck I mean, you. what I like was uh, back home was just one more place we didn't think about. 
Well, because you were commenting on the shitty over, like the narration this whole time. It's, it's pretty so bad. weird. It's really bad. Yeah. Well, I was I was also just talking about how like it seems like there are so many bad adaptations of books into movies even now. Oh yeah. But I feel like there's more pretty good adaptations mm-hmm. of books into movies now than ever before, and this feels like before anybody figured out how to take a weird esoteric novel right. that has all these elements and actually turn it into a film. Well, because there is something so like art house student film about an, a fucking narration, you know what I mean? Right, right. But that being said, it's like, we this is post Shawshank. Like this is, you know, where it's just <laughs> yeah, sort yeah, of like, yeah. oh, we like this guy, and then Dexter happened, and like, we There's, were okay. voiceover can be used for good. But I feel like now it's, it always seems cheeseball to me. Yeah. Like, I very rarely am I like, okay, you weren't sure quite how to, you were like, let's just take it straight from the book. Yeah, I, I did not enjoy watching this movie. It was long, too. It was very it was long. Very Two long. hours. Oh, and this is the line that I keep, like, butchering throughout this whole show is, when you have a secret, sometimes you have to take a little pain to keep it that way. Yeah. Because the homeboy got hurt, and then she was like, he just was kept alive, and the... Was there was a guy who, like, had a shark bite, and yeah. then he was basically going to die of gangrene, and yeah. the way they do it is they just bring him out into the woods and drop him off, right. because they don't want to hear him scream totally. until his death. It's, it's like, like, out of sight, out of mind. Right. And that's when it, like, transferred over, because the first guy, I think, he was just... Like, needed to get his teeth pulled or something and yeah. so they pulled his tooth out and that was right. a little bit like yeah a little pain is worth the secret then you're right. like or is it worth someone dying and yeah. getting a deadly infection that's exactly like you know <laughs> go to the fucking hospital yeah exactly <laughs> you're Tilda? already getting your makeup remover Tilda's an evil cult leader yeah <laughs> well with that <laughs> Please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And we will see you guys all next week for the movie Dark City. Oh, yeah, Dark City. Fuck yeah. It got dark. It did. No sun. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>